with experience comes resilience. With experience comes separating yourself from the thing that happened and seeing the far side of failure is success. If I'm actually taking the learnings and able to kind of self-reflect and those sorts of things, and I think these CEOs tend to have pretty rapid cycles of that through their careers that that enable them to get to the role. This ability to filter signal to noise. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard Scott Keller, a senior partner in our Southern California office, reflect on a key trait that exceptional CEOs have, resilience. Today, I'm excited to speak with Scott and his two co-authors about their new book, CEO Excellence, the six mindsets that distinguish the best CEOs from the rest. You can learn more about the book by visiting mckinsey.com forward slash CEO Excellence. Also joining us today are Scott's co-authors, Carolyn Dewar, a senior partner in our Bay Area office who co-leads our global CEO Excellence practice with Scott, as well as Vic Malhotra, a senior partner in our New York office, who's also chair of our America's region. In the first part of our discussion, we talked about how exceptional chief executives rally their teams around their vision and how they engage the board of directors. And today, we'll discuss culture, managing stakeholders, and how the pandemic has impacted the CEO role. Carolyn, Scott, Vic, welcome. One of the behaviors of excellent CEOs that you include in your book is that they treat the soft stuff as the hard stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that plays into getting the organization aligned around a purpose and direction that a CEO has set? Maybe, Scott, you could kick us off. So many are familiar with the quote from Albert Einstein that says, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted, right? And that acknowledges that there's stuff in the world that is not easily countable, so to speak, that matters. And I think most CEOs understand that culture and people, the soft stuff, if you will, that it, it matters. But they also sort of take what Einstein's quote implies and like, you can't really measure it. So how do you really manage it? And it becomes this, I'm going to tackle this on a best efforts basis. I'm going to get my HR professional to help me think about it. But it's always treated a little bit as like, because this is the soft stuff, I'm never going to really get it as managed as the hard stuff. This mindset of treat the soft stuff as the hard stuff has two aspects to it. So one aspect is the CEOs we talked to, they had no problem being very rigorous and disciplined in how they spoke about and how they managed the soft stuff. They literally took business discipline that they expect on the hard stuff and said, I expect that on the soft stuff. I expect people and culture to be managed with the same level of structure. I think the second thing that phrase, treat the soft stuff as the hard stuff, implies and as part of the mindset, there is this recognition that it's, it's hard to do. Oh, hard to do things are probably a good source of competitive advantage. And actually, if we can do this well and we can build a culture that's hard to copy, that's something special. Right. And so, again, that was part of the mindset that people approach that with. So that's a little bit on what we what what's unpacking that phrase of treat the soft stuff as the hard stuff. And if you're going to put a hard lens on the soft stuff, you also can't make it too amorphous or too high level. Right. You've got to be able to break it down so that the organization can understand what it is you're driving for. And therefore, can you put some metrics around it? Can you measure it? Can you talk about it? Can you role model it? Uh, all of that stuff, right? And, you know, one of my favorite examples is uh, Satya Nadella at 
at Microsoft where he said, and he mean our organization needs to pivot to a growth mindset, right? This growth mindset needs to be pervasive up and down the organization, right? Well, one, he picked one. He could have picked three, three others and said, yeah, three other things I'd like your mindset to change on. But no, no, he said growth mindset, right? And then he was relentless around the focus on that, both in terms of his own role modeling, his executive team's role modeling, how he thought about growth, what metrics he put in place, how he measured it. All of that stuff made that switch, which was like, I want your mindset to think growth. It became reality because, you, you know, it wasn't just amorphous, right? It was real. Sean, I might add to that, that this was, this changed at least the way I viewed culture. And I've written books on culture. And in the books we've written, we've talked about, you know, pick a short list of culture themes, three to five culture themes, and focus, focus, focus. My views changed talking to these 67 CEOs. Pick one. Yeah, pick one. Pick one. They all had one that they obsessively drove. It was, it was incredible. Now, by the way, sometimes one was a, a, a catchphrase that combined five things. Like So um, Johan Tiss at, at uh, KBC had the pearl culture, which was performance, empowerment. Like there was, it was you know, five things. But everyone knew what pearl culture was. And even at Microsoft, the growth mindset has multiple aspects to it in terms of collaboration, customer focus, innovation. But the one thing... And then to say, how do we get the hard wiring and the soft wiring of the organization right? Those are words that Gail Kelly from Westpac uses to, to around the one thing. It, it all of a sudden becomes quite manageable. Now, the one thing, the way Satya Nadella found it is he did a lot of cultural diagnostic. He had a little culture cabinet together. They refined, 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 and they chose the one thing. I mean, it's, it's data informed, it's driven. I think a lot of CEOs don't do that. You know, they don't take the time to do that. And they don't go and find the one thing that matters for their organization, for their strategy. You know, taking... Aon United from Aon, or taking innovation with purpose for, from Lockheed Martin, taking you know, freedom and responsibility from Netflix. Those are kind of the, the single phrases, the one thing from those firms, but they, they work because they were chosen by and for those firms. So I think every CEO should think about what's, what's our one thing. Awesome. Now, all these stories in your new book come from interviews with 67 very successful CEOs. Many of them, if not most of them, took place during the pandemic over video conference. So the context, the world, was changing under everybody's feet as you were speaking with them. How did you ensure that you were gaining insights into what had gotten these leaders to where they were versus what they were thinking of in that unique context during the pandemic? Or to put it another way, do you think the mindsets of these excellent CEOs had been reshaped by their experience through the pandemic? Carolyn? I think as we've talked about, we really strove to make sure the mindsets were timeless. And we were asking for examples and testing against pre-pandemic, in the moment, all of that. I think an interesting lens that we did talk about with the CEOs is, are there lessons learned from the pandemic that you think will shape the role going forward? And in that case, I think the answer was yes. And some of them, if anything, re sort of underscored the mindsets that we had. This idea of who you are, your to-be list as a CEO versus your to-do list. It was something I think CEOs felt acutely in the pandemic and see that going forward, that's now just an expectation of the role. The same with the multi-stakeholder. It had always been a theme, right? The 
Business Roundtable had declared it. The pandemic made it clear. I think CEOs are now saying that's not going away. If anything, it accelerated. So just like the pandemic accelerated digital transformation and all these other things, I think it's accelerated the expectation of the CEO role. And we'll see doubling down and expansion as we go forward. The, the, the six mindsets emerged from the research, right? Yeah. We may have had a few hypotheses, but in general, we just let these mindsets emerge from the research. I think at least what was interesting to me was, with perhaps the ex exception of the external stakeholder world, which over the last, call it five, eight, ten years, has dramatically increased with social media, pressures from the external world has, has gone up dramatically. I think it'd be fair to say that as we look backwards, we do see these as timeless, right? That if you'd gone back 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, they may have been less complicated, but many of them still applied then. And we're hopeful that many of these will still apply five, eight, 10 years from now. Again, context will change, pace of the world will change, innovation speed will change. Some of these le learnings though, you know, they should just apply just in new contexts. And I might add just a little bit to that too, which is if I go back to the sailing analogy, which we started with, the fundamentals of sailing haven't changed since the first sailboat in the Nile, you know, <laughs> thousands of years ago, right? But there's been a lot of innovations. There's been, you know, the innovation of the keel and there's an electric motor on your boat. There's all satellite navigation, etc. But the fundamentals of how do you manage course made good and how do you manage uh, boat trim and how do you manage sail trim, they're all the same fundamentals. So we, had, we did focus on the fundamentals. At the same time, I would say, and Carolyn alluded to some of this, we did separately, but in parallel, and sometimes cross-fertilize the interviews, we did talk to CEOs during the pandemic around, this is a CEO moment. What are you learning? What are you learning about the role? Vic often talks about boldness being so important, and I think a lot of CEOs learned how much they were undergunning the boldness of what can be achieved. How quickly we all were working from home, how quickly things became digitized, how quick... You know, it's kind of like, wow, that would have taken us, you know, yeah. five years to do that digital migration, which we just did it in five weeks. How did that happen? And why didn't we do it in five weeks anyway, right? So you, you, definitely that came through. And then the other one that Carolyn didn't mention is just CEOs to CEOs in a peer network. The value of connecting with CEOs, because what happened during the pandemic is a lot of CEOs would talk about, well, what are you doing with return to work? What are you doing with return to work? And they found, wow, we're... It is a lonely role, and we've probably been undergunning how much we can learn from each other. And so I hope our work of looking at 67 of the best CEOs like plays into that, like, wow, there is a lot to learn here that's in common that we can gain. And I, I think there'll be more CEO connectivity going forward. And I'm hopeful that actually the CEO connectivity will also start to focus on, and you know what, in a stakeholder capitalist-driven world or oriented world, we can take on some big societal issues as groups of CEOs. Thank you, Scott. Uh, to quickly switch gears, as, as you've noted, organizations' metabolic rates have also sped up dramatically through the pandemic. Can you just take us through how the CEOs that you spoke with kept their organizations from simply melting down from the pressure and the 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 speed of change? I mean, the stress of these rapid changes has been enormous for many, many organizations. And the word agility seems to be getting used more and more. So how are your excellent CEOs helping their people thrive over the long term and maintain their levels of energy? I think just as a CEO needs to manage their own energy in series of sprints, they need to help their organization do the same. Right? We've just been through 
more than a massive sprint, right, as organizations. And with every sprint, you do need some period of recovery, of consolidation, of regrouping. What does that look like? So I think you can set the aspiration going forward and continue to push. But I think that management for an individual, they need to be mindful of it for an organization. And I think we're in that period right now when everyone's trying to figure out how do we do the regroup and how do we then inspire the, the pace forward where we're not just going on panic and adrenaline. It's actually to something that's deeply meaningful for people and, and that will energize the kind of change, but change for good. I might just add that I, I think that, you know, if you asked a builder in 1900 how to build a skyscraper, they would build a very rigid structure up, you know, 20 stories, Right. You ask a building engineer now on how to build a skyscraper as high as the modern skyscrapers we have, and they would say, I build a stable structure that goes up hundreds of stories that has flexibility built in. So these have like a giant counterweight to actually lets a structure move three feet one way or the other if you're at the top of a building, but in quite a gentle manner because of the counterweight. And I think in the same way builders have learned over time, CEOs are learning over time, something we call stagility which is how do you have something that's stable and agile at the same time? Like a skyscraper would be, it's both stable and it's got flexibility or agility at the same time. And I think leaders are getting better and better and will continue to get better and better about how do we build higher and higher skyscrapers that are experiencing more and more extreme weather, the changes of which happen faster and faster. By the way, in 2000, we said, Change is happening faster than ever. In 2010, we said, change is happening faster than ever. I'm sure in 1900, they said, change is happening faster than ever. So I can't imagine what it's going to be in 50 years, but I bet that the fundamentals, as Vic said, are going to still help us manage that change. Thank you. Um, Earlier, Carolyn spoke about being struck by the humility of many of the CEOs that you spoke with. What are some of the characteristics that stood out for you, Vic, that maybe you didn't expect to see as much as you did? I, I think you would have had a real segment in there who said, this job is fun. In fact, I think Larry Culp said to us, this is fun. This is fun. This is like when I was on my high school basketball team. You know, I got all my buddies. We're all got a common goal. We're rushing like crazy. We may not always get it right, but yeah, we're winning most of the time. This is fun, right? This is fun. So I think you've got a segment in there that actually gets joy in what they do. In fact, I think a big segment that gets real joy in what they do. And that sense of joy and that fun and that passion, I think, permeates the organization. I think the other thing that comes through about them, which again, I think energizes an organization perhaps a little differently than humor might, is they're all pretty authentic. They're real, they're human, they convey that. They've got their passions, they've got their outside interests, they've got, uh, they've got things that they are excited about, the things that they're fearful about. Uh, they bring their whole self. Uh, to work, right? And I think that authenticity uh, also comes uh, comes through. And I, I would add the word disarming. <laughs> yes, they Not are disarming that. through humor, but disarming through humility. Yeah. And some of the things they would say, where they would ascribe credit to, the way they would talk about their colleagues and the people they learn from, when you're kind of like, but really you, I mean, you're amazing. And, but they weren't taking any of the you're amazing. They were taking, I am a servant leader. And I am humbled to sit in this chair and be empowered in this way to help other people be as much as they can be. And that was the orientation. You're just like, wow, that's what a beautiful orientation. And maybe, maybe that is at the end of the day what has helped you succeed to be the best of the best 
is that you weren't trying to be the best of the best. You were trying to help everyone else be the best that they can be. And that was kind of a cool, it's just very disarming. And, you know, Reed Hastings told us a great servant leader story, which was, he was, you know, as a young engineer, before he started Netflix, he was working late every night, three, four in the morning. And he was drinking a lot of caffeine. So a lot of coffee cups left on his workstation. And he'd come back in the next day, and they would always be cleaned up and put in the cupboard, and he'd get new coffee, right? Uh, one day, he sort of was working really late, went home, couldn't sleep because he just had things buzzing about the program and stuff, came back into work. It's like 4 a.m., and he sees someone washing the coffee cups, and then he double takes, and he says, what? And it's the CEO of the company. And the CEO looks at him and goes like, look, you do so much for us. This is the least I can do for you. I do it every morning when I come in. And, and that, that just kind of burned onto Reed's, you know, kind of psyche, like, wow, what an incredible role model of servant leadership. And I think while they're not washing coffee cups, fair enough, they're doing the equivalent in so many ways to help other people succeed. Thank you. Um, there will probably be a large number of people who are going to be reading your book who aren't themselves CEOs right now, but perhaps aspire to be leaders or simply want to learn from the best CEOs some of them may be quite young also, maybe starting out their own businesses, hoping to become unicorns one day. Um, were there any particular stories or experiences that the CEOs of these rather large companies that you spoke to shared that you think would help an up-and-comer or an entrepreneur um, in, in embracing those six mindsets that can help them succeed? These, to me, these are people who, you know, boldness is something that started early for them, willing to take on new roles they didn't know the answer to, you know, willing to take, just willing to embrace learning is a better way to put it, willing to try new things and learn. And in doing that, they gained experience, experience, experience. And with experience comes pattern recognition, pattern recognition. With experience comes resilience. With experience comes separating yourself from the thing that happened and seeing the far side of failure is success if I'm actually taking the learnings and able to kind of self-reflect and those sorts of things. And I think these CEOs tend to have pretty rapid cycles of that through their careers that, that enabled them to get to the role. And I do think this ability to filter signal to noise. Yeah, we've written this book on CEO excellence and yes, it is about CEOs excelling. I sort of view this book as much broader than that, right? I view it as a book on leadership, largely writ. You know, I view it as a book on how you might lead your own life. You could take some lessons away from how you might uh, lead your own life. Uh, I view it as a book uh, that's entertaining at some level. I mean, it's got some iconic names and iconic figures uh, in it. I view it as a book that's told through stories and as opposed to, you know, boring frameworks. Yes, there's a little bit of structure in it, but, but really it's kind of more, more storytelling, right? So... I suppose if I were to characterize the book, I would say, look, if you're interested in leadership, if you're interested in success stories, if you're interested in what drives people, what shapes people, what makes them, makes them great, you'll learn a lot here. That's the way I look at the book. I would take a similar take to, to Vic in terms of, uh, I see this book as well as being for people who are CEOs and aspiring to, it's actually just an interesting peek behind the curtain, right? These are these roles we all wonder about that have so much control and such big scope of role. And, and it's the stories of what is it like to be in those shoes? What is that role like with their lessons learned, their triumphs, all of that? And so I see it as a, a bit of a modern, modern day quest, right? Of, of how do people navigate these seemingly impossible, impossible tasks and, and get it done? It's incredible. 
And Sean, maybe just a final bridge on that. You know, I think about even what we do as McKinsey, and we work with a lot of really sophisticated organizations in very complex situations. And we look for patterns across those situations, and we often will codify knowledge that is then applicable in other situations. And in the same way, when it comes to leadership, you know, these are leadership lessons forged in the crucible of the most complex, hardest to manage leadership situations. And those are probably applicable in less complex situations. So we believe that's true. We hope our readers find that's true. And part of why we wrote the book is to make a difference in the world that's positive, not just for CEOs, but for leadership at large to help people unleash human potential, right? So. Um, so obviously a lot of work and time went into this book in, um, in discussing these and drawing out these insights from hundreds of hours of conversations with these top performing CEOs. How has this experience affected the way you think about counseling CEOs? I would say that most of us who aspire to be great CEO counselors, we, we start that journey uh, really around building trust and putting ourselves in the CEO's shoes, right? And, you know, building that trust-based relationship where we can hopefully be good listeners from an advice point of view on issues that are tricky and the things that they can't talk to about others and the like. I think for me, in that journey of how to be a trusted counselor, I think what the book does for me is it says, okay, depending on the moment, sometimes maybe you've got to be bolder with them when it comes to organizational direction because you know that's a winning formula. So with a new CEO, pushing them on that aspect uh, is going to be a good thing to do. Or when you come to talking about the organizational alignment and, you know, the soft stuff is the hard stuff, right? Maybe kind of counseling them a little more forcefully on that topic. Or when it comes to their personal operating model and how they lead their life, perhaps being a little more thoughtful around, you know, the way that they can balance things or bring a different perspective or manage the calendar better. We've all got our own playbooks that we've leaned on forever. Uh, and certainly my playbook has now been filled up a little bit more. Perhaps even the cup floweth over. I've got so many new nuggets now that I can use uh, in the playbook around how I might counsel CEOs. And nothing at the end of the day succeeds like a good story. And God knows through these interviews, we have got some amazing stories. Well, that was a great story and a great way to conclude this discussion. Vic, Carolyn, Scott, I just want to say what a pleasure this was. Thank you. And to all our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this discussion as well. CEO Excellence will be published on March 15th, and you can learn more about the research and the book at mckinsey.com forward slash CEO Excellence. We'll also include the link in the show notes for today's episode. As always, we'll share a transcript of this conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. 
Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page, again at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.